that members themselves saw very little benefit from the casino. Did they? Did the members of the tribe try to object to the way the money was being used? For several years, members of the tribe would raise the objections. They wrote letters constantly to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They wrote letters to the FBI. They wrote letters to the Interior Department, to other law enforcement agencies, and they simply never got a response. Now, what, what about regulation? There's the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There's um, a Native American Gaming Commission. H have those groups been useful at all in preventing this kind of mismanagement of profits from happening? This, the short answer is absolutely not. They've, they've absolutely done nothing. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs response is, well, this is an internal tribal manner, and you people have to deal with this yourself. No matter that what's going on is improper conduct, and, and there's another aspect to this, Terry, that we, ha we haven't talked about and may well be the most disturbing, and that is that these reservations in many cases are run like uh, dictatorships. They're run like the old communist bloc countries. Dissent is not <coughs> acceptable. It's not tolerated. People will be banished from the reservation. People who question what's happening may lose their jobs. They may lose their housing. Uh, it, it, it's very disturbing. I want you to talk about Marianne Martin. You describe her as presiding over America's smallest tribe, and uh, she built a very profitable casino. Uh, Mary Ann Martin actually uh, didn't even know she was an Indian uh, about 20 years ago. When uh, her grandmother died, uh, she became aware of her Indian heritage. She had been raised as an African American in uh, Los Angeles, pursued that, uh, and in the early 90s was designated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs as a member of the Augustine Band. At that point, there were no living members of the band. She and her two brothers uh, were designated as members of this tribe of Indians. And this was about 1991, and in, in, in the years that followed, her two brothers who were L.A. gang members were killed in the um, drug wars of that era. And so she became the only surviving adult member of the Augustine Band. And she began negotiating to uh, put a casino on her reservation in, in, in Riverside County in the desert, uh, not far from Palm Springs. And uh, last, uh, last July, the casino, the Augustine Casino, opened there. And so now she is the one-woman tribe member, proud owner of, the, of her very own casino. In addition, when a tribe is recognized, they also qualify for all kinds of government assistance. So Marianne Martin has also qualified and received several hundred thousand dollars in federal aid for housing to run her tribal government for the one per, one adult. There are, I should hasten, you know, we should hasten the other seven seven children there. She had three and four she took uh, from uh, her two brothers' families to raise them also. So in time, you know, you will have eight adults. But uh, that's the extreme situation of, of Indian gaming. So who, who profits from the casino in this very small tribe? Well, you know, she will profit and also the investors. And this is a uh, Las Vegas company, Paragon Gaming, headed by Diana Bennett, who's the daughter of William Bennett, who developed the Circus Circus Casino on the uh, uh, Las Vegas Strip. And she, in turn, had investors in other sections of the country who put up money uh, as well to help bankroll this project. So um, the picture that you're painting is that some of the casinos 
are run by tribes that are almost tribes in name only because they represent so few people and that the profits go to very few people instead of benefiting a, a large number of Native Americans they go to this very small tribe and they go to the the backers and the investors of this casino let's talk a little bit about uh, these these peripheral people who who profit from the Native American casinos how do the investors typically figure into this most of the names are, are not known names they're they're people folks have never heard of you've certainly got some las vegas and atlantic city uh the folks involved now from donald trump to certainly harris and so forth but but most of the people in the early years who backed a lot of these from the early 90s on were names that nobody's ever heard of and one of the most intriguing ones to us uh, is a malaysian billionaire who's now 85 years old fellow by the name of Lim Gotang, who financed Foxwoods, which is the biggest casino not only in the United States, but the biggest casino in the world, happens to be the casino of the Mashantucket Pequot tribe in Connecticut. Uh, he put together a deal, loaned them the money, and also took a cut of the profits uh, that will last until well in uh, roughly around 2018, it's our understanding. We calculated that he and his family and various companies that he's associated with will probably uh, profit to the extent of about a billion dollars over the life of those agreements. But again, nobody knows for the most part about these people. They they go on a case-by-case -case basis, project-by-project -project basis. They take 30% very often, the managers do, of these casinos once, they, once they're up and running uh, in return for running them and for backing them. And they, the other thing they do, which was absolutely fascinating to us, they don't just supply the money to build uh, the, the building. They take on the whole process. They finance the lawyers. They finance the lobbyists. They hire the genealogists in many cases if the tribe has to reestablish itself and show uh, what its lineage is over time. They take on the entire process. They pay the rent on the tribal offices. Uh, they pay uh, the salary or the consulting fees for the tribe's public relations officer if they have one. They take over the entire uh, really uh, market basket of things the tribe needs uh, to go online and have a casino. Are there feuds going on now between the casino-rich tribes and the casino-poor tribes? There certainly are, and uh, one of the most... Uh, it's not a full-fledged feud, but one of the uh, most interesting ones of these is up in Minnesota. Minnesota is one of those states in the Midwest with, with many Indian tribes, and it also has many casinos. Uh, the, one of the most successful Indian casinos in the country is right outside of, of Minneapolis. It's called Mystic Lake, the Shakopee, Mittawak, and Sioux, uh, which is a tribe of roughly about 300 members, uh, has this casino. This casino generates hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year, and, and every member of that tribe has done very, very well. To the far north in Minnesota, you have a tribe such as the Red Lake Band of Chippewa, which has roughly 10,000 members, and three small casinos that... If they make any money, it's a very modest amount of money. Uh, the tribe in the north tried to partner with the state of Minnesota to open a casino somewhere in the Twin Cities area to basically uh, make some money because their casinos in the north will never make the kind of money that ones near a big city will. And they were opposed in that by the, the Shakopee Midewakan and another uh, large tribe right outside Minneapolis and St. Paul who did not want to see in any way uh, certainly the proceeds they were deriving from gambling uh, interfered with. So that's one fight that you see going on. It's, it's a low-keyed one. It hasn't had much publicity. 
but you see things like this all over the country where the have tribes are resisting their efforts to share with the, the have not tribes. And, and, and Terry, to put that tribe in perspective, each member of that Shakopee tribe gets a uh, an annual dividend check exceeding $1 million. The last one was very close, to, I guess, to about $1.5 million. I think one of the uh, sad things that we have seen on a number of these reservations, uh, that's the kind of problem that would have been inconceivable a number of years ago, and that is uh, in some tribes, especially some of the small tribes, they have decided to, some are disenrolling members, some are not letting in um, people who are truly part of the, the family uh, because the tribal councils have the power and the control to be able to do that. So you have a situation, and we focused on one in part one, a tribe out in uh, outside of Fresno, which has an extremely profitable casino. And there are roughly about 100 members of that tribe who now share somewhere between 300 and and $400,000 a year in various dividends from that casino. Uh, there's an equal number, actually a slightly fewer number, of folks who are related to them, their cousins, uh, their daughters, sons, their aunts, uncles, all of whom are out of that same area over the years do not share in those profits because that particular tribal council has made decisions that have restricted the membership. And we found this all over the country. And actually, since... Uh, that first article appeared that, that talked about that particular tribe and what they're going through. We've had calls from all over the country, uh, other Indian tribes of folks who've gone through the same thing. One of your concerns, uh, the Indian casinos, is that you think it's, it's basically getting the government off the hook because the government can feel confident, the American people can feel confident. They have a system in place that's supposed to be helping Native Americans, these these casinos, where you, you help yourself through capitalism. But the reality is that these casinos aren't helping the majority of Native Americans um, so that uh, the, the, the confidence that American people and the American government can feel about the help it's giving Native Americans is is, is unfounded. It's absolutely unfounded, and uh, it's, I think it's one of the things that sort of uh, interested, interested us so much when we got into this subject, because there is this perception uh, that tribes are being helped, and the ones who are, that are being helped, of course, are really being helped, but the vast bulk uh, certainly aren't, and it's one of the reasons we think... Uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act needs to be revisited. There are a number of uh, ideas that are bandied about about what the solutions might be. But the main thing is it, it needs to have some more focus on actually who's benefiting from this, who has the likelihood of benefiting from this. There are all of these glitches in the picture that we were totally unaware of when we got into this. And, uh, and I think most Americans have no idea exactly what's happening in this, in this field. Do you see the story as fundamentally breaking down to being a story about good guys and bad guys, or do you see it as a story about a system that doesn't work? It's 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 more really the latter, though. There are a lot of good good guys and bad guys in here as well, but it's it's mainly a system that's broken down. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to see how uh, the 1988 Act, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, could not have worked the way some people wanted it to work. And, of course, now many of the tribes are taking the position that it really was not about uh, regulating gaming. It was about sovereignty, about building up tribal governments. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that's that's a certain kind of retrospect. It was mainly, it was largely to regulate gaming. It was in part to develop economic uh, institutions and reservations. And on the latter, for the very small tribes with the rich casinos, it's worked uh, wonderfully. 
but it's affected only a tiny percent of the percentage of the Native American population. And, and I think when you talk about the good guys, bad guys, certainly at the beginning you probably probably can't make that case, but you certainly can now because uh, uh, Congress has just refused to look at this issue. You have a very few lone, lone voices on Capitol Hill. Uh, uh, Frank Wolf of, of Virginia, the Republican congressman, I mean, he's like a voice crying in the wind. Nobody pays any attention to him, but he's he's tried to bring this issue up time after time after time. And the other members of Congress simply aren't interested in it. And the campaign finance reform so uh, widely touted here over the last year basically does not apply to Indian tribes, which is one of those exceptions that has not gotten a lot of great publicity either. Why doesn't it apply to Indian tribes? Because while soft money applies to to all groups, uh, there's an, ex an exception which was uh, basically decreed by the Federal Election Commission uh, that lets uh, basically individual members of the tribe contribute as much as they want to uh, individual candidates. So are candidates making a lot of money right now from Native American casino profits? They they have been, as particularly in California, as Don was saying, uh, the money that's flowing out there is astonishing. Indian tribes are now the largest special interest in that state. You go back a decade, they were barely a blip on the uh, sort of the, the special interest radar screen. Now they they spend, they contribute more, they give more than such legendary special interest groups as the trial lawyers and the doctors. Uh, they're they're number one out there simply because. There's so much cash flowing through those operations. Was this a hard piece to write in the sense that, you know, you're writing about Native Americans and you're writing about corruption within the casino system on Native American reservations. And uh, I'm sure you have a lot of um, sympathy for Native Americans who have had, you know, their land taken from them and their rights taken from them and are now struggling uh, to make a living. And here you are bringing bad news about what goes on in the Native American casino industry. I'm sure, you know, I'm projecting here, but I imagine it's bad news you didn't really uh, want to bring. Um, so I, I, I'm just wondering if there were a lot of landmines in, in, in writing about the story that made it very difficult. I think you put your finger on something that's very important. I think in, in, in no small part, this attitude is why the situation is spinning out of control as it is, because there is a reluctance to, uh, there's a great deal of sympathy out there. I mean, the way this country has dealt with the Indians over 200 years is, what can you say about it? On the other hand, when you see close up the way individual tribe members,